The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk about coaching, and particularly coaching as a manager, not coaching as an external. I have to say, if there is one single skill that I could personally magically change in all of my corporate clients, it would be to make everyone who is a manager and a leader a really good coach as well. Wonderful things would happen. I believe if managers coached well, performance would improve, engagement would go up, and trust would be greater. And if a manager is a great coach, for me, i got to honestly tell you, I'm more likely to trust him or her, and I am far more likely to be engaged, and I'm even less likely to leave, because who's going to leave a great coach quickly? Not only that, but the inclusivity, of the inclusive culture and the diversity would improve. It would just be great for everybody all the way around. Now, the problem, though, of course, as we all know, in today's world, is that particularly for expert leaders or producers, managers, there's no time to do much of anything, let alone manage well, and there's not enough value placed on it by management and enough skills to do it adequately, um, let alone well. So, coaching falls by the wayside. But the good news is, today, we have help for that. We're going to focus on how to lead and manage through coaching. I'm going to tell you this is all going to help your delegation efforts, and I'm going to tell you it's simpler than you think and faster than you think. So with me today is Michael Bungay Stanier. Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons, a company that helps organizations all over the world do less good work and more great work. They're best known for their coaching programs that help time crunch managers coach in 10 minutes or less. Michael's book, the one that's best known and has sold over 100,000 copies, is called Do More Great Work. But as Michael will say, the one he's most proud of is In Malaria, a collection of essays on great work from leading thinkers that raised over 400,000 for malaria no more. Michael, welcome to the show. It is delightful to be here. I know we've been planning this for a while, and it's nice to, on this great day, get together and talk about this. So thanks for having me, Wanda. I'm really looking forward to it, and I am particularly looking forward to hearing your advice on how to coach in 10 minutes. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it's so important because, just as you said, we know coaching is a critical skill. We also know the biggest barrier to why managers and leaders don't coach is not lack of interest or lack of skill. It's lack of time. So how do we overcome that barrier? I know we're going to dig into that. Absolutely. So, and I want to remind everybody, this is about coaching as a manager, not coaching as an external coach. So what's the secret sauce to being an effective coach, Michael? 
Well, it's simple but difficult. And really, if there's a thing, if it boils down to a behavior change, you know, thing to do differently, it's how do you stay curious just a little bit longer and move to advice giving and actions just a little bit slower. Because what I've come to discover is that managers and leaders, for all the best reasons and the good intentions in the world, are advice-giving maniacs. I mean, they love to give advice. I mean, they're into a conversation, 20 seconds, they don't really know what's going on, but they do have some initial ideas on what they could be doing and what they should be suggesting and how they could be fixing it. We are all wired to leap to advice and solutions and actions and planning. And what we're trying to do is figure out a way of saying, hey, slow down just a little bit, and how do you stay curious just a bit longer? I wonder, I'm going to say this. What we're not, we're going, there are two important things for people to hear right from the start. The first is we're not trying to turn anybody into a coach. I mean, there's lots of coaches out there already, and lots of managers and leaders, probably the majority, don't want to be a coach. They want to be a you know, person doing their job. What we're trying to do is have these good people be a bit more coach-like a bit more often. And the second critical thing for people to know is we're not looking to add coaching to all the stuff they're already doing. Because let's face it, most people have more stuff to do rather than less stuff to do. The last thing they need is an additional task. What we're trying to do is transform the way they currently interact with people so it can be a bit more coach-like. Those are two core principles that's important to get on the table right from the start. Okay, so I love that. This is not about becoming a coaching and adding something else to your plate. It is about transforming what you're already doing so it's more effective. Right. Cool. Okay, now, when I talk to managers, leaders, especially ones who have come from being the experts, who are used Mm -hmm. to having the answers and knowing what to do and knowing what the next steps need to be and knowing how to guide people around problems, they somehow feel that their job is to have answers. And the thought that they don't give an answer immediately feels like they're not doing their job. Yeah, that's right. You know, like, this, I've been taught that this is the way I add value. I've been taught that this is, you know, I've got a degree of subject matter expertise. This is going to be great. This is how I'm a useful person. So it comes from a background of expertise and, you know, for most people, a genuine willingness and a desire to be as helpful as possible and also secretly wonder going, this is the fastest way to deal with this. If I can just get, tell them what to do, it's going to get them out my door and I can get back to all my other stuff. But yeah. here's what you find happens. By being so, in inverted commas, helpful like this, a couple of things happen. The first is, people's advice isn't nearly as good as they think it is. I mean, they want it to be great. It's probably okay-ish. But most people are, for instance, jumping in and providing solutions to the wrong actual issue. They think the first issue is the thing rather than the real issue, which may not have emerged yet. Secondly, people are terrible at taking advice. I mean, most people don't follow advice. I mean, to everybody listening right now, you know, think of all the advice you've received in the last week or so. Lots of people have been telling you what to do. How much of it have you actually taken? Not a whole lot. And then the stuff that you have taken probably wasn't as good as you thought it would be or hoped it would be. And honestly, people feel that way about your advice as well. The third thing, and this perhaps is the biggest thing, is that what you're doing is you're training the people who are coming to you to be dependent on you, to be codependent on you. So that they're like, this is fantastic. I don't have to do this myself. I've trained my manager and leader just to give me the answer. And what I think you want and I think what they want is to have them be more self-sufficient, more autonomous, 
more creative, more capable, and that's what coaching can do. It can increase the capacity and the self-sufficiency in those that you lead so they get to do a better job and they get to do it without taking so much of your time. The goal I want for everybody is to actually be able to work less hard but have more impact in the work that they do. Fabulous. This is, I mean, I just want to reiterate that whole point about training people to be codependent. Today I was talking to somebody, there's been a transition in the lead of who's heading the organization or the part of the organization. The old leader was absolutely, totally a micromanager, knew the details on everything, the expert on everything, and was used to telling people what to do and how to do it. The organization, over years of a lot of success, got quite comfortable waiting for this particular leader to tell them what it was going to be done and how it was going to wash. I think for myself, he knows it better, and he's going to tell me anyway. So, hmm. New leader comes in and is going to struggle mightily because that's a well-ingrained behavior inside that organizational culture. Right. Everybody's been trained not to take the initiative, not to come with ideas, not to start anything new because... What, as, you, as you perfectly said it, what's the point? Even if I had good ideas, they wouldn't be listened to. Even if I started something, it would be stopped and we'd have to do it their way. Right. So you're, you're right. There's got to be a shift in mindset and behavior change for that new leader to come in. If she or he is like this, to go, hey, here's how we're going to work now. It's not going to be me telling you what to do. It's me supporting you to figure out what to do. Okay, support as opposed to tell. Isn't that a good word? Mm. Okay, so you said at the beginning that it's a matter of staying curious for a bit longer and being a bit slower to give advice. Right. Is that really just about asking questions? You know, it, it, that's the surface of it. So in the, in the new book, The Coaching Habit, I share just seven essential questions. And I say, look, if you can get these in your back pocket and start using these more often you will become a more powerful coach. It's not to say you never give anybody advice. I'm not saying you give up on that or you give up on all the stuff you already know about being a good, effective manager. Just I'm saying we just want to rebalance things a little bit. But, you know, honestly, one of the, the key thing that you have to start with is not knowing what the questions are. It's about understanding what you need to do to change your behavior, how to build new habits. So that's why the book is called The Coaching Habit. It's not just here's about coaching. It's about here's what we know about behavior change and habits are the building blocks of behavior change. So we've got to know how to do that so that we can then start building in the questions and start behaving differently as a result. Okay, so I want to do this in a sort of backwards format. Sure. I hear you very clearly that we've got to talk about how we change behavior, but right. I'm really curious about these seven essential questions. So Good. can you hit us with those and then yeah. we'll come back to how to change behavior? Let's start with those and then people are like, okay, I like that question. How do I now make it a habit? And we can get to that maybe in the second or the third segment. That would be perfect. All right, so let me give you the, 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 the bookend questions as the starting point. So, Wendy, you heard me say, you, you said it yourself, if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you just don't have time to coach. So what's important is a busy manager, a busy leader, you need to be able to get into the real and interesting conversations much more quickly and you need to finish them more strongly as well. So let me give you the opening question called the kickstart question, and it's simply this, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? Now, look, here's why I think this is so effective. It is an open question. It invites them to make the decision, them to make the, the call on what to talk about. 
So you're granting them authority and status and self-sufficiency and autonomy, all sorts of good things. But you're not saying to them, and tell me anything you want. You're saying to them, tell me about the thing that is exciting or worrying or keeping you up at 4 o'clock in the morning or consuming you at the moment. Let's talk about the thing that actually matters. And we've all been in meetings where you've gone, wow, we spoke for an hour, we never really got to the, the, <laughs> we never got to the most important thing to talk about. How did that happen? What's on your mind is a great way of plunging into more quickly getting into the stuff that matters. I mean, just imagine to those folks listening in, those one-to-one meetings you have with your direct reports or maybe with your boss, which secretly you both know both of you are slightly bored by because it's a recitation of all the stuff that's going on. Instead of that, ask the question, what's on your mind, and start talking about the thing, and it's going to become immediately much more valuable for both of you. So that's question number one. Question number seven, the wrap-up question, the learning question, as we call it in the book, is the second part of the bookend. So finish fast, start fast, finish strong. And here's what we need to know about this. It's called the learning question because you need to, one of your most powerful roles as a manager and a leader is to be a teacher, to help people learn. And to do that, you need to understand how people actually learn. People do not learn when you tell them what to do. That's why your advice doesn't work that well. And people don't even learn wonder when they do stuff. They learn when they have a moment to reflect on what just happened so they can make the connections and have the aha moment. So that's why this question can work so well. And the question is this, what was most useful or maybe what was most valuable here for you? You, know, you can imagine that people come to the end of this segment, okay? Instead of just going on with life, if they actually stopped and asked, okay, what was most useful or most valuable here for you in this conversation between Michael and Wanda? What they're now doing is they're reflecting, they're extracting the value, they're having the aha moment, and that's where the learning happens. So that's, the, that's two of the seven questions, the bookend questions, starting strong with what's on your mind, finishing strong with what was most useful or most valuable for you. Does that all make sense so far? That makes a ton of sense, and I can imagine how easily this could transform the regular jour fix one-to-one catch-ups with your manager. Exactly. So that we don't have to do all the recitation of stuff that, quite honestly, if I needed, I could just put in an email is far more efficient than anything else. Right. And we really get to the stuff that I desperately need to talk about, and I want the thinking partner, the sounding board, the re- review. Yeah. And I love this notion that you stop with what was most useful. That's feedback back for the manager. It also causes the person to pause and say, actually, what did help me here? Right. Um, what do I want to remember and take away? Okay. And, and it's subtle how we've asked it. We've not said to them, was there anything valuable here? So that sets you up, A, for a yes or no answer, which isn't that useful, and it doesn't create the learning moment. The question is very specific. What was most useful here for you, or what was most valuable here for you? Or what do you know now that you didn't know before? Or what are you taking away from this conversation? They're all variations, but the point is to cause a moment to stop, reflect, extract the value, just as you said. Okay. I love that. So if we do nothing else, what's on your mind? And then at the very end of the conversation, what was you most useful? What are you taking away from the conversation? Now, you got me curious. What are the other five questions in the middle? And and, um, so let me give you the the next two as a combination, because I love these two as a combination. And the first one comes from the inside that most people in most organizations are working really hard 
on the issues that aren't the most important issues. They're solving the wrong problems because we so quickly rush to fixing the first challenge rather than being curious and figuring out what the real challenge is. So this is called the focus question. And the focus question is, what's the real challenge here for you? What's the real challenge here for you? And wonder again, it's important to hear how it's constructed because listen to different variations on that and you'll see how it builds to become strong. You could ask, what's the challenge here? And what you're going to get is a pretty fast, pretty superficial top of mind answer. You could ask, what's the real challenge here? And that's, that's harder to answer because now it's like I've got to figure out out of all the challenges that are there, and you know, there's obviously more than one, which one matters most? But I think the question becomes really powerful when you go, what's the real challenge here for you? And when you add for you, the spotlight swings from being on the challenge to being on the person who's dealing with the challenge. And I can promise you that's a much more powerful place for that person. That's where the learning happens. That's when they learn about themselves and they get the issue fixed as well. So the focus challenge question is really powerful. It becomes even more powerful when you add the best coaching question in the world. So I know this is a, this is a big boast, Wanda, and this question only has three words in it. A-W-E is the acronym, so it's literally an awesome question. And this question, simple but powerful, and what else? Because here's what I can promise everybody. The first answer to a question is never their only answer, and it's rarely their best answer. So and what else does two things. It extracts more value from any question you ask, kind of gets the juice out of it, but it also keeps you curious for longer. Remember, that's the behavior change we want. Stay curious a bit longer, move to advice giving and action just a bit slower. So Wanda, here's a, here's a way of combining these that can be really powerful. It's almost a script for people. You go, okay, let's pretend I'm having a conversation with Wanda. I go, okay, Wanda, so I understand what's going on, I think. You're giving me some background. What's the real challenge here for you? And Wanda will give me an answer, and I'll nod my head and listen and be curious. And I go, great. What else is a challenge here for you, Wanda? Great. What else is a challenge here for you? And then I'll lean in, and I'll go, okay, so what's the real challenge here for you, Wanda? And look, I know if you're listening to this, that's going to feel a bit artificial and a bit weird because you're just staying curious, you're kind of following a script. But I can promise you this conversation in just two or three minutes is going to evolve, shift, get deeper, get more powerful. They may not only get a clear idea what the real challenge is, they may even see what the answer to their real challenge is. It's extremely simple but an extremely powerful way to stay curious and just dig deeper into what the real challenge might be. I can see why that and what else. I'm going to do two parts of this. First off, I see why and what else is so important because I often say to people that when you're trying to understand what's going on for somebody else, 99.999999% of the time, the first answer they give you is not it. Right. And so that one layer or two layers deeper is where you really get to the good stuff. The other thing that's so cool about this, what's the real challenge here for you, is we know that priority setting is critical for success. And we don't do it. We're lousy at it. We think that there's 10 priorities is adequate. But this really does narrow down to where do we need to focus our time and energy. Right, exactly. 
It's like we, we all have too much to do. So if you, I mean, this is honestly one of this is called being strategic. Being strategic is making a choice about where you spend your time rather than reacting to everything. It's like where do we, what, what's the choice we're making about where to focus? And what this question does is allow people to stay curious and strategic just a bit longer. Okay, I love it. All right, so I've got two and three in combination, which is a focus question and the best coaching question in the world. Right. What's we've got, next? We've got three more to go. So okay. here we go. The, the, the next question is the foundational question. Really powerful. It's number four, so it's right in the middle of the seven questions. Again, simple question to ask. Difficult, powerful question, illuminating question to answer. And this question is, what do you want? What do you want? I mean, one of my heroes in this field, you know him as well, Wonder I think, is Peter Block, great writer and a thinker. Um, and he really champions this idea of building adult-to-adult relationships in our workplace. I mean, he once said his job is to give people responsibility for their own freedom, which I think is a wonderful, powerful phrase. And when you ask, well, what, okay, that sounds good, but what does that even mean? What's an adult-to-adult relationship? Well, one way of defining it is it's being able to ask for what you want, knowing that the answer may be no. So when things get discombobulated, when you're feeling angry or confused or sad or frustrated or lost, one of the most powerful things you can just ask yourself is, what do I want here? What do I really want? And what you're going to find is that question has a brilliant ability of stripping away the drama and kind of the emotion and the kind of blood in the eyes and helps you kind of get to the heart of what do you, what do you crave here, what do you need, what do you want. And from there, you have a much stronger foundation to actually starting to go and get what you want. So I almost called this the gold, I mean, it's called the foundation question in the book. I almost called it the goldfish question because honestly, when you ask that question, so often you get somebody who looks a little bit like a goldfish. I mean, their eyes pop open a bit and they're, their mouth makes this kind of guppy, guppy sound. That's kind of the, the goldfish look, and that's the challenge of what you want. So the okay. two other questions, the two other, I'm oh, sorry, Wanda. Go ahead. I was going to say I love it now. Our job as a coaching manager is to make people feel like a goldfish. Okay, good. Right. It's, it's a, yeah, your job is to ask that question and then be quiet and let them figure that out and sit with that. Well, two more questions, and then we'll cover the seven questions. The number six is called the strategic question. And, uh, you know, we talked about strategy being choosing what you focus on. The strategic question really pushes towards that, is, and it's this. If you're saying yes to this, what will you say no to? Because in these days, a, a yes that doesn't come with a clearly articulated no is almost useless because we're all so committed. And there's no point in trying to add more to what you're currently doing because the glass is full. So really, strategy in its essence, is figuring out what to say no to so that you can give the things that matter most a full, full-hearted, full-blooded yes. And so that's that question. It's really about helping understand opportunity cost and have the discipline of focus. And then the final question is called the lazy question. And when I tell you what this is, it'll sound almost contradictory, but it's lazy for a very important reason. The question is, how can I help? How can I help? Or... A, a kind of blunter variation is, what do you want from me? So here's what typically happens. Somebody comes into your office or your cubicle or email or on the phone, and they start talking. And before you know it, because you're a good, keen person who's desperate to help and you've got a lifetime of leaping in, 
you're already creating an intervention. You're giving them the answer, the solution, the suggestion. And rather than doing that now, you're going to stay curious just a bit longer and you're going to do it by asking that question. So they tell you what's going on. You go, great, I understand what's going on. Let me just check. How can I help? Well, let me just, out of curiosity, what do you want from me? And what that does is it forces them to make a clear request to which you can then say, yes, I can do that, or no, I can't do that, or can't do this, but I could do that instead. And it forces a much clearer transaction about how you are going to contribute to whatever the challenge might be. It and also keeps... There's a seven questions and kind of snappy sound bite form. Does that all make sense to you so far? It makes absolute sense. This okay. last one also, how can I help or what do you want from me, keeps you from picking up additional work. Exactly. And it keeps you from taking stuff that other people should be doing for themselves. Michael, I love this. We're going to take a break here, but let me just reiterate the seven questions because they are so powerful. They're so simple, but when you stop to understand why they're so powerful, they make a huge difference. So the first thing, the mindset here is to stay curious a little bit longer and resist giving advice a little bit, be a little slower to give advice. So the first question is what's on your mind. Mm -hmm. The second question, the focus question, what's the real challenge here for you? Followed by the third question, and what else, and yep. what else, and what else. Exactly. The fourth is the foundational question, or the goldfish question, what do you want? I mean, what do you really want? Yeah, exactly. And Five. what else do you want? And what else do you want? Yeah. Okay. And the strategic question, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? So that we're focusing on fo- uh, focus and opportunity. The lazy question, what do you want from me, and how can I help? Said in a nice way as opposed to an unpleasant way. And the final killer learning question at the end of it is, what was most useful to you? What are you taking away from this conversation? So there's a moment for reflecting. Perfect. Powerful. Okay, with me today is Michael Bungay-Stanier. He's founder of Box of Crayons. The book is two books. One is Do More Great Work, and the more recent one is The Coaching Habit. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how do you make this more of a habit and change the way you do things. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. 
What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Michael Bungay-Stanier, Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons, a company that helps organizations all over the world do less good work and more great work. They're best known for their coaching programs that help time crunch managers coach in 10 minutes or less. And we've just been talking about the secret sauce for doing that. Seven secret questions that are actually quite simple, but fabulous results if you stop to use them. The important thing, though, that Michael says here is that we want you as a manager to be a little curious, a little longer, and a little slower to give advice. And that is about changing habits. So in this segment, I want to talk about changing behavior. So we all say we're going to do things, and then it never works out that way. We wobble right back to the old ways. And in this particular case, as a manager that's trying to coach, time efficiency, I wobble right back to telling people what to do. So, Michael, so why is this so hard to change behavior, even when we're really motivated to change? Well, it's because it's really hard to change behavior kind of accidentally. I mean, you need to be focused around how to do that. That's why the title of the show is so perfect, Out of the Comfort Zone, because honestly, one way of thinking about what a habit is, is it's your comfort zone. It's the thing you've been doing time and time and time again. I mean, this is how habits form. You know, in our brain, you know, the, the metaphor that's sometimes used is, you know, in North America, the Grand Canyon, because I'm Australian by birth, I talk about the Catherine Gorge, but the, the metaphor is the same, which is, you know, a drop of water becomes a trickle, becomes a stream, becomes a river, and then it kind of cuts its way through the landscape. And what happens is pretty much every drop of water ends up in that river. And same with our brains. You know, the first time we do something... Neural connections fire, a link is made, then we do it again, it fires again, and the link strengthens. You do it more times, the more you do it, the stronger it becomes, and it becomes that kind of metaphorical groove in our brain. It's the fault way of working. And these grooves never go away. So our challenge, why it's so hard, is we're trying to overcome the grooves. And to do that, you've got to not only go, okay, I, I'm, I see the behavior I'm trying to do differently, but you've got to understand how to go about creating new habits. And that's not, that's not easy, not least because there's some terrible, terrible advice out there about how to actually build new habits. So how do you build new habits? 
Well, look, the first thing you do is you don't just do something for 21 days and hope it becomes a habit. I mean, that's what lots of people have heard. And honestly, somebody just made that up. And that advice now kind of haunts the internet like, like a zombie. So, look, I, I did a lot of research on this. And um, I, I pulled on people like Charles Duhigg, who's written a wonderful book called The Power of Habit, um, a guy called B.J. Fogg, which is spelled with two Gs at the end. He's got a great website called tinyhabits.com. Definitely worth checking out if you're curious about this sort of stuff. And then other people like Dan Coyle, who had a wonderful book called The Talent Code, and Leo Bauter, who's one of the world's most popular bloggers. He has a blog called Zen Habits. So I did a lot of research on this one because I wanted to get it right. And what we came up with is actually something called the New Habit Formula. Very simple, but a very powerful tool to help you understand how to build new habits. It's got three parts, and I'll just talk you through those three parts. The first part is summed up by the phrase, when this happens, when this happens. And why this is important is because you are identifying the trigger, the cue, the situation that sets you off in the old habit that you're wanting to change. This is the key insight that Charles Duhigg gave me, which is when you read his book, he says, look, a habit isn't just a behavior. It's got three parts to it. It's got the trigger that sets you off, the behavior, which is the actual action, and then the reward. That's the little chemical kick in your brain that makes you go, oh, that was good. I'll do that again next time. So that, that's the first part of the new habit formula. When this happens, you identify the situation. So for instance, it's like when I have my one-to-one meeting with Wanda, that's the situation. Part two of three, second step, instead of, that's when you identify and clearly articulate the old behavior that you're looking to change. So for instance, I could say instead of going through the same old agenda that Wanda and I always go through, where I end up telling her what to do. So that's the old habit. And then I will is the the third part. I will, and here's what's critical, in 60 seconds or less. You know, this is the thing I took from B.J. Fogg, who said if you're going to define a new habit, do it in a way that takes 60 seconds or less to actually complete. So with this example habit, it's like I will ask Wanda, what's on your mind? Because that takes less than 60 seconds to actually do. So my new habit would sound like this. When this happens, I have my one-to-one meeting with Wanda. Instead of telling her what to do like I always do, I will ask her, Wanda, what's on your mind? And what that gives me is a very specific moment, a very specific person, a very specific action that I can start practicing and embedding and actually now making into a habit much more likely to happen than me just going... Yeah, listen to the radio show. I should just try and ask more questions and be curious. That's not going to change your behavior. Okay. I love it, Michael. That makes a ton of sense to me, and I like the very simplicity of when this happens, the trigger, instead mm. of doing what I usually do, I will do the following in 60 seconds or less. Now, presumably, one of the challenges, though, is I need to make sure I keep that top of mind for myself so I don't forget that that's what I said I was going to do. Right. Any advice there? Well, what's nice about this is that in defining the habit, you've already identified a specific moment. So you're like, okay, I have my one-to-one with Wanda Monday and Friday, so do it then. 
And then it's like whatever works best for you in terms of as an aid memoir. You know, it could be um, something in your calendar. It could be you tie a, you know, a ribbon around your finger, a strap of string around your wrist. It could be that you ask your boss or your direct report to remind you about that. You know, I could email Wanda and I go, Wanda, here's how we're going to run this conversation. I'm going to ask you this. This is the new habit I'm trying to form. Help me out with this, Wanda, because I'm... Uh, it's like a song, isn't it? Help me wander. Help, help me wander. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to forget to do this, so be on my side. You know, get, help me support, become more coach-like. So there's all sorts of different ways to help remind you. It's like what works for you and use that. And the key thing here is don't try and do too much at once. Don't you know, build one, maybe two habits. Don't try and build 15 habits because that's destined to fail. Okay. Great. I love this, Michael. Fabulous advice here. We're going to take a break again, um, but let me just reiterate the kind of core point. The notion is that habits are well-established, part of our comfort zone. To change a habit, I have to recognize the trigger. I have to change the behavior in a very specific way. So I should do the following. When this happens, the meeting is occurring, instead of telling, I'm I will, and what am I going to do in less than 60 seconds? And ask other people to remind me to do that so that I don't forget it. And then I should keep that to one or two things at a time, not too much. I love it, Michael. Um, We're going to take a break again. Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons. The book is Do More Great Work, as well as Coaching Habits. And when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion to talk about what else you can do to be a fabulous coach as a manager. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. 
These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Michael Bungay Stanier, Bungay Stanier, excuse me, founder of Box of Crayons. Their focus is on helping organizations all over the world do less good work and more great work. And they do that primarily with their coaching programs to help time crunch managers learn to coach in 10 minutes or less. We've been talking about, in the first segment, talking about the kind of questions that you can ask, seven very straightforward, incredibly powerful questions that force your team to take more accountability, do more responsibility, get more focus, take care of themselves more, and produce better results. Now, in order to ask those seven questions, we have to change a habit, meaning we have to get out of doing the same things that we've always done, which is largely tell people the answer to stuff because it seems faster and quicker and more efficient. And the secret to changing habit is to recognize that you have to do it differently. So there's a three-part to it. First is identify the triggers. So you'll say to yourself, when X happens, and X is the thing you're trying to change, two Instead of doing what I always do, I'm going to do this thing, and I will, in 60 seconds or less, do the following, and then let people know you're going to do it so that they can hold you accountable for doing it. Sounds straightforward, but it's a matter of making a commitment to a particular action in a particular moment in time with a particular person, and we all know that those kind of goals become far more effective. Don't try to change too much at any given time, one to two habits at a time. Now, Michael, so we're talking about managers learning to coach, not about coaching in general. And we're not talking about how managers add five more things to do their workload. We're talking about changing the way they interact, staying right. curious a little longer and a little slower to give advice. Exactly. Now, in all of this, we haven't talked about the power of positive feedback or feedback in general along mm-hmm. the way when you're trying to coach somebody. How does this fit into the equation for you? Yeah, that's a perfect connection to make because when we talk about what we've been talking about so far, these seven questions and the habits, these are really about the moments where you're like, look, I know we're going to interact. How do I stay curious during those moments rather than move to advice giving in action like we talked about? But sometimes you need to go and give somebody the feedback. It might be positive feedback, might be negative feedback. You know, I've heard some people go, look, there is no positive or negative, it's just feedback. Okay, and you get to figure out what to do with it. That's when you need to initiate the conversation. And, of course, I know lots of people go, oh, feedback, let me avoid that at all costs. You know, they may spend three weeks worrying about this conversation and then they kind of launch into it and it goes terribly wrong quickly, kind of goes off the rails. 
It can be messy and difficult feedback. So for me, Wanda, the, the practice that I think can be most useful, I think there's kind of twofold. One is knowing what to say. Second is knowing how to say it in a way that increases your odds that it's going to get help, heard. And it's really worth figuring out what do you want to tell this person? And I'm really influenced by the work of Marshall Rosenberg, who is known for nonviolent communication. And look, I'm going to give you a simplified version of his thinking, but it can be quite powerful for people. And it starts like this. Communication, this isn't feedback, it's all communication, really has four parts to it. There's data, feelings, judgments, and wants and needs. So really quickly, I mean, it's intuitive. People will know what I'm talking about, but just to make it really explicit, data, the facts. You know, that's the things that happen. That's the truth of the matter. Feelings are how you are emotionally reacting to the situation. And everybody emotionally reacts to a situation, even, you know, old white men like me, even we have emotions, even we react. And, and the five emotions that I think, I, I use the core emotions that I think of, mad, sad, glad, ashamed, and afraid. Mad, sad, glad, ashamed, and afraid. So that's the second part. Data, feelings. Then there's judgments. So that's your subjective interpretation of what the data is, your, op- your opinions, you know, your way of seeing the world. Um, and you tend to have judgments about the other person and you have judgments about yourself and you have judgments about the situation at large. And then the fourth and final element is what are your wants and needs? What do you want? That's kind of the explicit request you might make. And then what do you need? That's kind of a more deeper human thing like you know, comfort or joy or recreation or whatever it might be. So first of all, untangling what's in your head so they fall into those four different buckets, extremely powerful because often these things get kind of mushed up and kind of presented all at once, willy-nilly hoping that something will happen. So untangling all of that, really powerful. And what often happens is people get a, a sense of how they're feeling. They see the difference between the data and the judgments about the data and what will surprise everybody is how little data they have, but how many judgments they have. And really, when they get clear on what do they want or what do they need, that's when the path for this feedback conversation really becomes clear. Once you know what you want, what to say to the person becomes much more clear. And in general, my principle is it's always useful to share the data so that you both have a shared understanding of what the truth is. And it's useful to get clear on what you want or what you need is and share that. And then, as is appropriate, depending on the person, the time, the situation, it can be useful to thoughtfully provide some feelings and judgments, the ones that are likely to move the conversation on. So, ones that don't move the conversation on sound something like, you make me crazy because you're deliberately betraying me and and attempting to derail my career. Probably not a useful thing to share, but I'm concerned because I don't think you realize the impact this is having on your reputation, feeling judgment. That could be, for instance, a useful combination to share. So that's a really powerful start, figuring out these four elements and then figuring out what you want, what you want to share about the data, and how to have that conversation. What do you think, Juan? Does that ring true for you at all? It does ring true for me. I, I certainly start with you at the very beginning that I think the hardest thing for managers to figure out when they're trying to give feedback is what they want to say. 
and to separate the actions, the behaviors, the facts, the observables from the opinions and judgments. So I pick on one of my favorite ones that I talk about all the time is, as a manager, I want you to be more strategic. Right. Okay, fair enough want, but it's a judgment that you're not strategic. And right. until I translate that into some data, some observables, some facts, you won't know what the heck I'm talking about. And the conversation doesn't go anywhere where. So it, that really resonates with me. And I think it's really important to separate the feelings and the judgments and then to figure out which of those are appropriate to share and how to share them in right. the moment. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I mean, that, that's a nice set, set up for the second thing that I think is really useful is once you know what you want to say, you know, clear on the data, it's almost always useful to share the data because you often don't have all the data. So the other person can go, well, here are my facts. Um, share what you want because that's actually the thing that drives the conversation and makes something happen. Then you've got to go, so how am I going to say this in a way that doesn't have people automatically react and move into fight or flight mode? Because honestly, when you come up to somebody and go, hey, Wanda, I'm going to give you some feedback, what happens is that brain just gets triggered and you're like, okay, I'm in fight or flight mode because that does not sound good. But how do you say things in a way that really resonate and it can get heard by people? And this for me is when we get into neuroscience. And, you know, in the book we talk about the neuroscience of engagement. And we say, look, here's what we know. The brain five times a second is asking itself, is it safe here or is it dangerous? Is it risky or is it a place of reward? And if it feels safe and if it feels like a place of reward, then that brain is going to stay engaged and that means you've got a smarter, more subtle, more compassionate, more on-your-side person that you're talking to. If they're finding it risky or dangerous, then they're into fight-or-flight mode, black-and-white mode, you're against me, not with me mode, and that's a much tougher person to deal with. So we talk about in the coaching habit this this terror model, T-E-R-A, the four factors that make the brain feel safe. And the four factors are these, tribiness, in other words, are you with me rather than being against me? Expectation, meaning do I know what's about to happen or do I not know? Rank, meaning are you more important than me or less important than me? And finally, autonomy, meaning do I get some choices around here or are you making all the decisions for me? And the more you can raise that terror quotient, the more likely they are to stay engaged, the more likely they are to stay engaged, the more likely they are to hear that valuable feedback that you actually want to give them. So give me an example of how I would, in a feedback conversation, raise the terror quotient. Yeah, great. So let me give you one of the simplest but most powerful ways of doing that. It's this. Let's pretend I was giving Wanda some feedback. Before I, I launch in and say, Wanda, I got some feedback, I'd say something like this. So Wanda, look, I do want to give you some feedback about what just happened about the radio show. But before I do, just let me ask you, how do you prefer your feedback? How do you like your feedback? And here's what happens in that moment. How do you like that feedback? does a few things. It gives her autonomy. It raises the A factor. It ge- increases the R factor because now her rank is raised because she gets some say in how the feedback's about to happen. It raises the T factor because it feels like I'm on her side. I want to help her, not I want to punish her with this feedback. It even raises the E factor because now she knows how she's going to get the feedback. 
So that simple question, how, I mean, and we give you some feedback, how do you prefer your feedback, raises all of those levels and raises that sense of engagement. What's also brilliant about that question is that, you know, eight out of ten times the person's going to say, just give it to me straight. Just, just give it to me. And what's brilliant about that is so many of us have prepared a long and rambling and kind of, I'm trying to avoid the hard thing that I'm going to try and tell you. Now you have permission to jump right to it and give them, tell them the thing that matters most. So we're back again to a little bit more curiosity, a little longer, and a little less telling so quickly. Yeah, and you do reason. that yet again with a very powerful question that gives the person some autonomy, some sense that you actually care about how they think about this one, um, so sense that it's relative, it's going to be safe, and it right. then in turn gives you permission to tell the truth. Exactly. So that's okay. a really good tactic. Let me give you one more one, which I think could be helpful okay. for people. Just more a principle, but it will influence a number of decisions people make, which is where do you give them the feedback? Because your physical interaction is a strong influencer of that. Just to give you an example, if you sit across from your desk from them and go, I'm, I'm going to give you some feedback, that sets up a certain dynamic. If you sit kitty corner with them, so kind of 90 degrees to their side, that changes it. It feels like you're more on their side. If you sit next to them and go, let's have a conversation about this, that changes things again. If you get out of your office and you sit in a neutral territory, that changes things. If you decide to go and walk shoulder to shoulder somewhere and have a conversation, that changes things as well. So how you physically set yourself up to have this conversation will have a real impact on whether people feel that that terror quotient is being pushed up and helping them engage more or push down and actually kind of unconsciously making people disengage. It's a fascinating concept, Michael, this notion of the terror quotient, the tribiness, are you with me or not? With me or against me, I guess we should say. The expectation, right. what is it that's about to happen to me here? <laughs> Am I going to be surprised by this or not? Right. Rank, Am I being treated as if I'm important, or are you thinking that you're more important than me? And autonomy, do I get any control over what's about to happen or how it's about to happen? The notion is, if you can raise the Terra quotient, then I'm going to reduce people's defensiveness, reduce the black and white thinking, and open their receptivity to the feedback. That's right. Michael, I feel like we could talk for another hour. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It's been fabulous. To have you on the show, I just want to go back to something you said at the very beginning. The whole focus about coaching as a manager is to stay curious a little longer and be a little slower to give advice. There are seven fabulous questions. I'm going to do the bookend ones. Start with what's on your mind and then listen and finish with so that people learn what is most useful or valuable to you? What are you taking away from the conversation? Michael Bungay, the organization is Box of Crayons, and the book is Do More Great Work, as well as Coaching Habit. Next week, we'll be talking with Loris Zachary, continuing in this theme, but this time about mentorship. How do you create great mentoring relationships? Join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Take charge this week. 